Hello, friends, and welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, a speaker, a best-selling author of the book, U-Turn. Get unstuck, discover your direction, design your dream career. And I created the U-Turn book and the podcast as a place to help you connect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week, I want to bring a guest on with the intention of helping you expand what's possible for you, both in your confidence, whether it's in work or love, and just in life in general. So let's get into this week's episode. What's going on, my sweet U-turn friends? Today, we have Kelly Thompson on the show. She's a women's leadership coach, a speaker, and she helps women advance to those rooms and those tables where decisions get made. She's coached, she's trained hundreds of women when it comes to trusting themselves, leading with confidence, creating a career they really love. Um, And she's the founder of the Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Program and a Stevie Award winner for Women in Business, Coach of the Year. And she's the author of Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. So I'm really excited to talk to her about how to create success in your first 90 days on the job. We're going to cover so many different topics. What does it look like and how do you step into leadership when you have a really difficult boss? Um, what don't you know about salary negotiations that you need to think about? I mean, Kelly was an HR leader, so we can ask her about that. Um, so much more, uh, Kelly, without further ado, thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. I'm excited to talk about all of this. These are good topics. Yeah. You know what? I'll start with something fresh. Um, and I was about to ask you what got you into this, but you know what? I'm feeling so fiery today with all these questions that people just submitted. I'm like, okay, let's go. Um, I'm curious, you know, a lot of people right now, especially our needs in the wake of the pandemic are changing and what we're craving for work, or should I say they're starting to be met and now we're requiring them, right? Because I think a lot of people really wanted remote work and wanted all these things that have come now. Um, But I've gotten an unusual amount of emails on toxic bosses and I get that. I think right now mental health is so challenging, like so many people are experiencing so much. Um... So I'd love to get your take as a leader uh, for anybody listening right now who has a difficult boss or just a difficult person they need to report to. What are some ways to start softening that dynamic? Or is yeah. there that you know that it's really, really good question because I would also agree that there is more tension right now than ever before between maybe what bosses want. And maybe what individuals want as work. So let's just kind of back up. Let's go at 50,000 feet. If you were a client of mine and we were sitting together and you said, I have this toxic boss, I would have you get very granular and I would have you name what in your mind is making this person toxic. Because I think there's two categories. One can be they use condescending language. They don't appreciate diversity. There's microaggressions, right? And so like to that end, we probably have an abusive boss, right? And some of those things can't be tolerated. Other people might say, well, I have a toxic boss. Okay, well, let's talk about what makes that boss toxic. Because sometimes when they get down to the granular level of it, um, what some people think is a toxic boss, another person loves. Because maybe they have like a different preference. And so you said something about, um, you know, uh, people coming back to work, um, attitudes are different. Sometimes the way that my clients are describing a toxic, toxic boss is a boss that demands people be on site 100% of the time. Right. And to them, they've had some ahas over the pandemic that say, I really love this remote work. I love this flexibility. I really have like codified some values around how I want to work and how I want to live. And I want to demand that of my employer. And sometimes we have a leader who doesn't share those same points of view. They value different things. Now for people, let's just say, who want to be in the office full time, and they also value that, to them, that might not be a toxic boss. This is a boss who, boss who shares my values. And so I, I really always like us to use clarifying language mm-hmm. around what we're dealing with, because then we're going to use the right approach. So okay. is it that this boss is abusive? There's microaggressions. There's inappropriate comments. There's you know, credit for the work. I, I just heard a question from a listener who said, like, what do I do about a boss who always takes credit, gives me no exposure? They're hiding me. Um, it's like, you know, these sorts of things. So can we go through some of those situations? Like you said, an abusive boss or someone who has a level of toxicity that there might not be hope, you might need to change jobs. Is there a a moment where you say, okay, I need to go to HR and talk to them about this. It's worth fighting for versus I'm just going to jump ship and go somewhere else. This person sucks. Like how does somebody make that decision as a leader? 
for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So the first place I always have them go is I have them go to the leader and address the behavior directly. And just, you know, just say, hey, one of the things that I noticed is that when I turn in projects and then you go and speak to other leaders or whatnot, you don't specifically mention my name as someone who worked on this project. And it's really important to me to get that sort of recognition. And I would be curious if that's something that you would be willing to do is if I work on something, would you be willing to mention that I took part in that? Yeah. Sometimes folks are just not as self-aware as we think. So I always say, go to your boss first and ask, ask for the change of behavior. You know, if they're a good leader or maybe nobody's ever told them that before, like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that I wasn't saying your name. So like, let's just give that person benefit of the doubt. Now, if the person continues with the behavior, you have a choice. Is that something that you want to go to HR about? Is, is this an HR issue? Do you feel like engaging a third party is going to change that? You can, if you feel like that's right for you. But I always say before you leave or before you try something different, let's try to rectify the situation first because we don't want to like recreate more problem scenarios at the next job that we go to because we're unwilling to address things that we're unhappy with in our current job. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like you hit the nail on the head. I think the real work is not in trying to figure out, should you stay, should you go? I think it's first learning how to communicate. And I think that, I mean, one of the biggest pain points that we have as a society, whether it's romantic relationships or professional ones is how do you, so, okay. I'm sure a lot of people are listening and they didn't like your answer because it's a good answer and it's uncomfortable. So, um, for you, for me, we're good at words. So it's pretty straightforward to both authors to be able to say, Oh, we just communicate. For other people, not so much. So I love the format you gave of, and so for those of you who are taking notes, what I heard Kelly say is, hey, I noticed this. Um, I'm curious if there's anything I can do because I value this other thing, right? That was kind of the template that I heard you say. Um, what What would you do if somebody was so toxic that they didn't validate you? Because I know that being invalidating is a very toxic trait where they'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't do that. Um, how do you walk that line between not being combative where you're like, here's all the examples of you being really awful versus like, well, here's a couple examples. How do you kind of navigate providing information without seeming like you're attacking them? Yeah, sure. So like, let's just say that you have gone to your leader a couple of times to give them that feedback. Hey, um, this is what I want. This is what, you know, is important to me and those sort of things. And you've done your part in communicating it. And then to your point, you feel like maybe there's like, there's some gaslighting there. Yeah. Or you're imagining that, oh, I totally do that, or I don't do that, right? And at each point, they continue to either refute your feedback, dishonor your feedback, or deny your feedback. Well, then you always have a choice. Yeah. I think sometimes, like, you know, in situations like this, and like, I'm just thinking of my own experiences in leadership where I've had bosses that I didn't enjoy. And so I really had to take a step back and say, okay. Is this something that I can continue to endure? Like, can my mental health handle this? Is this in alignment with my values? Sometimes, like even in my own personal thing, I, I would ask myself, okay, how am I even feeling about my job and the work? Because if I really love the job and I really would love the work, I remember even asking myself, I wonder how much longer this boss is going to be here. Like, does this boss have a history of job hopping? To which, you know what, maybe their two year is coming up and I just have to eke it out about three more months. And so I would really have to go deep and ask myself these questions. What's worth fighting for here? Is it fighting for my job, knowing that this boss might leave? Or if I feel like maybe there's not going to be a lot of movement, I address this with them, that person directly. Then I have to go in and ask myself the hard questions. Well, you know what? Like if I've done my part in advocacy, like I always have agency. So I get to choose. I get to choose. Do I want to go in the organization and work for someone different? Because I, I enjoy it here. I, I truly do. And I've done that. I've made that choice. Or, you know, is it time for me to leave altogether? And I can't answer that for you. I mean, that's a lot of internal work about asking yourself. And you know this, like, yeah. you know, what ultimately gives you peace? You know, what's your gut say? What does your yes. intuition say? My friend, are you ready to climb into bed at night feeling extra comfy and cozy? If you are, then Cozy Earth is just for you. It was named one of Oprah's favorite things in 2018, and its best-selling bamboo sheet set is both temperature-regulating and incredibly soft. I recently got these sheets for my new place in Florida, and wow, I feel like every night I'm just crawling into an actual cloud. So there's no more scratchy bedding, 
No more sticky, sweaty nights, just breezy, beautiful rest. And Cozy Earth's bedding collection offers a variety of luxury pillows, sheets, blankets, and more. Get ahead of your spring cleaning with fresh new bed linens from Cozy Earth made from luxurious, high-quality fabrics you won't find anywhere else on the market. I mean it, they are really amazing. Head on over to ashleystahl.com slash cozy. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L dot com slash cozy. And enter the code U-TURN, Y-O-U-T-U-R-N at checkout for up to 35% off site-wide. Again, that's ashleystahl.com slash C-O-Z-Y for 35% off your order. I love that so much. And one thing that I was thinking a lot about, so I have three friends right now who one called off a wedding, one is calling off an engagement, one um, was within a three-year relationship and was completely blindsided. The guy was living like a double life and literally impregnated someone. So, and she had no idea. So point being, I've been thinking a lot about intuition because I feel like life is so much easier when you hear, not even hear, but you let yourself hear that whisper inside of you that tells you where your boundaries are, what's a yes or what's a no. Um, so let's say that, you know, somebody's toxic. They've, they've brought it up to their boss a couple of times. They're starting to be like, all right, we've talked about this a few times. It's going nowhere. What's that decision where you decide, you know, you were an HR leader. Is it appropriate to go to HR at a certain point and say, Hey, I really love my job. Cause I think there's a lot of people that they do like what they're doing and it's the person that's ruining it. And I tell clients all the time, there's what you do, meaning what job skill set you're using. And then there's how you do it, meaning how you work, who you work with. And sometimes people think the job they're in is wrong for them because there's some other factor involved, like a bad boss that's really ruining the pie. Mm-hmm. Um, so when does somebody decide if they do like what they're doing to just talk to HR versus jump ship and listen to their intuition? And, and also, do you have any wisdom around how to t- tune into your intuition? Yeah, well, let me answer this two ways because I've also called up a wedding. Okay. And Welcome my intuition set me there. Yes. <laughs> so maybe maybe that'll be answer part B. Let's do answer part A. So I've been in this situation where I talked to my leader, talked to my leader, wasn't getting anywhere. You know, this person, um, ironically, I was in HR. So I had to go talk to other HR people. So you have a couple paths here. One, you you love the company. You actually really do love your work. You've made, you've addressed this with your leader. Nothing's changing. That is a point where you can ask yourself, you know, like what next step feels like peace? Is it to talk to HR? Okay, well, what's my goal for talking to HR? Because I think sometimes people think that I'm going to go talk to HR and then they're going to have an intervention with this leader and they're going to give this leader some sort of like pearl of wisdom that's going to make them change and they're going to, you know, change overnight and everything's going to be great or they're going to swiftly remove this leader. And I just want to have realistic expectations about what going to HR looks like. It does not always equal immediate change. Unless I have seen it, there is a microaggression so egregious and so just out of line with the company's values, I have seen immediate termination. However, if your boss is just difficult and they aren't leading in the way that you would prefer them to lead, it's not going to be a swift, they're going to take the proverbial cane and wipe them off the stage. I mean, let's just be realistic about what HR can and cannot do um, in certain timeframes. And so I think, you know, you really just have to, to ask yourself, you know, is that the outcome I want? Knowing that talking to HR may not be the magic bullet. This person will likely still be my leader for a certain period of time, unless, like I said, there is an action that has been so egregious that it requires immediate termination. And so you have to decide, is that the next right step for you? And maybe the next right step for you is going to HR before you choose to leave the organization. I think it's really going in and trusting your gut and asking your gut, what is my next right step? Okay. So I love this t- this idea of the next right step because I feel like our career is in seasons, right? Like we are sometimes in transition and we don't have the answers. And I have a few friends in business where they've created these really successful companies, but they're in transition and the things and services and whatever's that used to feel good for them don't feel good anymore. And I think it's the human experience to want to feel good, which makes freaking sense. But sometimes you're in that season of in-between, right? Where you're like, I don't have the answer next and I don't want to grab onto something weird like an octopus mm-hmm. and you know be all over the place even more and then have to clean up another spill in aisle five of my career. You know, so- what are what are your suggestions for that in-between phase of attuning to yourself 
and getting connected. And then I'm going to ask you all about the first 90 days of a new job because I feel like that just flows right on into transition time. It does. And so I'm going to answer this question in the context of calling off my wedding because this is exactly the whole like conundrum of what was having happening at the time. So I was in this five-year relationship. We were engaged. We were about three months away from the wedding. And I was just having like red flags, little red flags, unsettling. I just unsettled, 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 unsettled. And I was like, maybe I'm not trying hard enough. You know, and I think we do this with our jobs too. Like, maybe I'm just not trying hard enough. Maybe I need to work harder. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I need to go to more counseling. And we can kind of start to even almost gaslight ourselves. And so one of the things though, I remember a coworker came in and I told her about what was happening with, you know, my impending wedding. And she looked at me and she's Kelly, she's like, God is not the author of chaos. He is the author of peace. Mm -hmm. What decision feels like peace? And I just like in my whole body, and maybe if you're listening, you can feel in your whole body, oh, I know what peace feels like. So when we think about our next right steps, the other thing that was happening in the context of me calling off my wedding was my job was also changing. Mm -hmm. And when we're in that liminal space, which is exactly what you just described, it's almost like my old job, my old business, my old relationship doesn't fit anymore. And I've decided I can't go back to that. It just, it doesn't work. I can't go back. But like that new thing isn't here yet. I haven't figured out what octopus or animal or sea creature I'm going to grab onto yet. Like it hasn't made itself clear. Like that liminal space period is so disorienting. Mm. And it's like, you feel like you're bumbling through the world. And I know I felt that way. I was like, I don't even know what I want or where I'm supposed to go. I'm so afraid I'm going to make the wrong decision again. I thought my picker was broken in terms of people. And then I'm like, what if I make the wrong career choice? And so my answer is this. When we're in liminal space, small steps matter. And the best thing that you can do is clarify what your values are. Like, what do you value? Like, what do you want your life to stand for? I really had to get clear about a lot of the reasons why I was either in the wrong career or the wrong relationship was because these these people just didn't share my values of how I wanted to work and how I wanted to live. And so I got really clear, okay, my values are love, family, respect, creativity, and learning. And so in that liminal space, when I was thinking about what is my right next career choice, how do I find the right next partner? Because I was divorced and I called off a wedding and I was convinced my picker was broken. So, and I see, I see a ring on your finger now. So your picker. And then now I'm remarried. He's amazing. He's awesome. And the, the way I got through that was I made small decisions. And all I said was, I don't know what I want yet, but I know what I don't want. Right. So I'm going to say no to everything I don't want. and. I'm going to evaluate, is this right next step in alignment with my values? Does it honor the way I want to work? Does it honor the way I want to live and who I am as a person and what I stand for? Yeah. If we don't know what we stand for, we fall for everything. So that's my answer to that question is how do we kind of bridge that gap? I want you to get really clear on what you value and ask yourself, is this itty bitty right next choice in alignment with my values? Does it honor what I stand for? Okay. I love that. And speaking of values, let's say somebody did the work, they got a new job. They're really excited. We live in a weird remote world where they need to make friends through computer screen. Um, you know, and now that I've just, I took my meditation teacher training and found out that we barely see most colors in the electromagnetic spectrum. So we're just like in this little world, uh, looking through a screen at people trying to connect somebody wants to ace their first 90 days. Like they know that there's a lot riding on them. Um, I've learned, you know, through coaching people myself that the worst thing you could do is like insert yourself so aggressively that you don't observe the environment that you're in. And, and, you know, I feel like a lot of people are eager to start making an impact, eager to start showing their value, which I feel like can be one of the biggest time sucks is trying to show your value versus just providing value. So can you talk to us a little bit about for anyone right now, who's maybe starting a new job or thinking about it, what are some of those key things they need to think about in the first 90 days? Yeah. So I switched careers a lot and I coach a lot of women who switched careers. And I remember one of the things in my own way was I remember I'd been in the company for like 12 years. So I went to go start at this new company, right? And like, you know, the first week you're kind of on this high because you're in onboarding, you're in training and you're like, oh, this is amazing, you know? And then like all of a sudden the reality kind of hits in and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't know anybody. And they have all this jargon and I have no idea what's happening. And at least when I started new jobs, like I remember going into that career change where I was like, okay, kind of like you said, here's all the things I'm going to do. And here's my list. And here's what we're going to accomplish. And, you know, you just kind of like get into that whole list checking mode. And like you said, here's all the things I'm going to implement and all the people I'm going to oppress. 
And then you get there, at least I got there and I was like, I have no idea what these people yeah. are talking about. I don't know who the players are. They're dropping names that I don't know. And I came from this environment where I had been there for 12 years and I knew people and I could work my networks and it was really unsettling. And I yeah. personally experienced, I know my clients have too. This is when a lot of doubt and imposter feelings can hit like, yeah. oh my gosh, am I even qualified for this? Am I even, did I even make the right choice? And so my advice to that is it's time to maybe change your goal. So I think a lot of times we go into a new job with a goal that you said, which is I'm going to do and I'm going to impress and I'm going to achieve. Mm -hmm. Well, what if you made your goal in the first 90 days learning? Like that's your only goal is just to learn as much as you can. As you said, observe as much as you can meet people. I know like lots of times we're on Zoom if you are in a fully um, remote thing. So, you know, what are you doing to take things off of Zoom meeting and have side conversations to meet somebody, even if it's just like a little 15 minute like laser session just to connect with someone. So that's really the first thing is, you know, change your goal. Instead of doing and achieving, change your goal to learning. And I would say the second thing to think about to really master your first 90 days is we really need to untangle our who from our do. Meaning like a lot of times because we grew up in America, we're very career focused. We really confuse what we do with who we are. Yeah. And so when we've been experts at previous jobs and we've been high performers, when we move into this new job and we aren't those things right away, it can be really unsettling to our psyche because we're like, oh my gosh, well, if I'm not the cheaper, then who am I? Well, let's kind of unwrangle the who from our do and think about what are some other things that I can contribute and that I can experience that have nothing to do with how many boxes I'm checking or how many results I'm getting in the first 90 days. My friend, are you ready to launch your own podcast? Now more than ever is the time to start. Since I launched the U-Turn podcast in 2018, I've grown this show to hit the top charts and we've even been so grateful to bring in over six figures in sponsorship deals nearly every year. And we have amazing conversations with top leaders and experts, as you know, and I just can't believe to this day that I get to have this much fun and that the show gets to support my business with sponsors we love that we get to share with you about. I'm so enamored by the fact that I get to have this much fun and impact while being paid to do it. And I want the same for you. So if the idea of you doing the same, creating a podcast, monetizing it and making an impact feels exciting, and expansive, you're in the right place. And I want to share with you that my podcast launch course is coming. But in the meantime, I wanted to give you a complimentary, very detailed launch checklist filled with prompting questions to get you clear on your show, tactical action items, and everything else that you don't forget anything, as well as the creative ideas to market and launch with impact. So what I have here is more than just a free checklist. It's the beginning of your future as a fellow podcaster. I really want this for you if you have the inspiration I did. So head on over to ashleystall.com slash checklist, and you can get this tool that's totally free. Again, that's ashleystall.com slash checklist for my free checklist to start your podcast and launch with love. I love that so much. And I feel like sometimes this like eager desire to start making an impact, it, it's kind of misguided or misdirected because you don't really know where you're, you know, really adding value yet. You don't really know who you're working with, how they work best. Um, that being said, I feel like the times that we're in right now, I don't know if it's because companies are strapped to find talent. Maybe there seems to be a discrepancy in the amount of training people are getting versus the amount that they actually need. So I feel like there's a lot of people that they're like in the first 90 days, want not, not wanting to be a squeaky wheel. They don't know what they don't know about what to ask and they're not getting training. And it kind of feels like one of those things where you become best friends with somebody and you forget their name and you should have asked them the week that you met them what their name was. And then you see them again and again and again. And then you're like, okay, now that we've had seven deep life conversations, what's your name again? It's like the worst feeling. I feel like that's what it's like in a job when you haven't gotten training. And then you're asking a question that is kind of embarrassing and damaging because it's like, yes, there are no stupid questions, but why is this person asking this question when they should really know this? And is this pointing to me that this person doesn't know anything about what's going on? And I know that people don't want to create that sort of lack of confidence in them. Mm -hmm. um, so what about for the person who needs some training, needs some help, 
they want to ask, like, how do you get vulnerable about that with and stay professional and strong? Mm-hmm. So I, I, there's like so much in that question that I want to address, especially yeah. as someone who used to lead like training and development teams in corporate. Um, you know, I think sometimes when we go into new jobs, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, just like you described. Okay. Yeah. I got to get in and I got to meet the people. And I was just thinking of like a Ben Stiller movie when you were saying that, right. Mm-hmm. You get so far down the path, you feel like oh, you've God. just like walked yourself into a hole, but Like, I want you to notice if you're doing that right now, or if you're thinking of doing that, like, what are you believing that makes you feel like there's a certain date by which your time has expired to ask questions? And the reason why I say that is because I think a lot of times, like when we go into these new jobs, we put so much pressure on ourselves to like, like take all the training, get it all figured out, have it done in the first 90 days, even the first six months. When honestly, like when we think, when I think about leading training teams and I think about people in my training class, we have so much compassion for learners. Like, and think about even if you've ever managed people or maybe you've been a coach outside of work, maybe you coach um, your child's team or you've just done something where you've taught people, okay? Like, I want you to really think about the compassion that you have for those people that you're teaching, like, do you expect them to have all their stuff figured out by a certain date? Like, or do you have more compassion for that person because they're learning and you want them to ask questions? And so I wanted us to just notice maybe a little bit of like the beliefs that we're carrying that could keep us in this place where it's like, oh gosh, I can't ask because it's been 90 days. And there's like this invisible timeline that says I have to be a genius right now. So I'm just wondering who can be a little bit more curious, a little bit more open, a little bit more like self-compassionate about like giving up on timelines. In regards to training, I'm just going to say there are some companies who nail onboarding and there are some companies who don't. And so if a formal training and onboarding program is really important to you, um, and that's a value that you hold, that an organization is really um, wrap, tightly wrapped around the axle of having a training or onboarding program, ask that because maybe that's a value for you and something that you want in your career. I mean, I know individuals who strongly value learning and they never thought to ask, what is the employee development like here? And then they get there and there is none. And overall, it just creates a lot of dissatisfaction. And even in the long term, because what I found is that companies will spend money where they value. And if they aren't spending money on onboarding or training, they're probably also not spending money on leadership development. And so those are just some questions that you're going to want to ask if that's something that you value. Sorry, I'm muted. Um, I was going to say like, okay, let's say that somebody's taking this conversation into consideration and they still want to create some sort of pop in the first 90 days. Do you have any kind of like little trade secrets for people to pull out in the first 90 days? Like, what is the one thing that you can leave someone listening now to just keep on their mind if they want to create a pop in their first 90 days? And then I want to ask you about money and salary, because I feel like nobody's getting the salary that they want right now from what I'm hearing. So yeah, let's do it. Okay. So here's the first thing I would tell you. One, go into that job, especially when you know nothing. This is my own practiced advice that I give my clients is I want you to remember, instead of comparing and despairing about how much you don't know, I want you to first own what are the unique skills and talents that only I can offer. Meaning Mm -hmm. even if I know, I went from banking to healthcare. And even if I know no jargon, no systems, no people, no players, what is the unique value proposition, the unique perspective, the unique skills that only I can offer. And I really had to think about, well, no matter what the context is, the skills that I can offer are how to create leadership development programs, how to treat people, how to lead change management, how to develop talent programs. Like that doesn't change in the context. So that's why I want you to think about what doesn't change no matter what context you're in and how much you know or you don't know. And the second thing I would think about is, you know, what, how do I want people to see me? Like if, you know, after 90 days, people are like going to just, I would hear them talking about me at the water cooler and they're using three words. Like what three words would I want those folks to say about me? I love that. And then I want you to combine that with what feels like the right action for you. So given what you know for sure about you and your skills and talents and unique perspective versus the, you know, how you want to be seen at work, that probably gives you some clues on what you value in terms of a leadership brand. Then you can ask yourself, what is mine to do? What is mine to contribute? I can't answer that for you. And I don't want to, because that's where you need to tap in. Like, is it asking really good questions? And that's how you make impact. Is it always making a comment about something that you are an expert about in meetings or offering perspective on that issue? 
But given what your talents are, what you value, I want you to really think about what is mine to do in the first 90 days? How can I make an impact? Like you said, without trying to set myself up for failure or, you know, um, trying to achieve or do too much. Right. Right. And I think that um, the specificity of like really tuning into how do I want people to feel? I think that's so powerful. It really gets your vibration where you want it to be. Um, okay. So let's say there's somebody who has stayed at their job a while. Inflation is happening. They're doing a great job and they want to have the money conversation. Or we can also talk about the person who is, you know, coming straight out of the gate and they want to negotiate their salary. Can you talk to us a little bit about like how to navigate the it's time for a raise conversation and also just salary negotiation in general, given that, I mean, I know I have my own methods, but I always love to hear from a fellow coach who mm -hmm. talks about this. So I'm really excited to get your feedback on what yeah. you would tell your clients. Um, what do you suggest people do when it comes to this? I'm going to put my HR hat back on and I want to give y'all yeah. perspective from inside HR's glasses. Okay. So like, let's just say that you've been at your company for a while because this is a different conversation. So let's start there. Yeah. And let's just, the data does show that people who stay with companies a very long time are paid less than people who come in because we know how this works, right? You get your three to 4% annual increase. Well, that just doesn't keep up with what we're recruiting and paying people to come into the organization. So that is a fact. And I just want to just level set that there that perhaps if you haven't negotiated a raise in a while and you've just been on cost of living increases, it could be a clue that it's time to do what I'm going to tell you to do. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is, is I want you to really think about what is the work that I do? What's my job title and what are my job responsibilities? We are in an amazing time right now where there is so much salary information out there. Glassdoor has really awesome info. Payscale.com has awesome info. Um, um, Salary.com has really good information. I love a tried and true method, which is going to your state Bureau of Labor Statistics system. They Many of them have what they call a wage estimate system where you can drill down and find what your job is and what people are being paid in your city for that job. And that's like state reported data. So like it's solid. So I want you just to get a few data points of, you know, the job that you're actually doing, not your title, because we know how that works. Sometimes titles can be wonky. I want you to compare the actual work because at some companies, some people are managers, some people are directors and they're doing the same work. So get some data points. And, and then I want you to just take that data point and say, okay, what would be a good number for me to advocate for? What would be a better number? And what's a best number? And this is really, really want you to trust your gut here. Like what, what's, what's kind of your gut say about what you should ask for? Really listen to your intuition. You know your company, you know your company's compensation philosophy, those sorts of things. Second thing I want you to think about is in the last, let's just say one to two years, maybe since you know, you've been in your role or since you've had this conversation, what have been your key accomplishments and what have been the results of those? Because that's really important when you go to advocate is number one, you have the data, you have a range. And then number two, you say, these are the things that I've accomplished. And these are the results that this has caused for the organization in terms of, you know, customer retention, savings, revenue, et cetera. And then you can you know, do point three, which is, you know, um, what do I believe is a fair number to ask for? Mm -hmm. And so I want you to just kind of do that reflection. And then I really encourage you to practice this ask. So practice it with a partner make your dog sit on the couch and like get the words out of your mouth to somebody who's like non-judgmental. So the first time you're asking for it isn't in front of your leader, right? Like get some repetitions down. For some people, they feel more comfortable emailing the request first and saying, one of the things I would like to discuss in our next one-on-one -on -one is my current salary. I've been taking a look at market data and reviewing my accomplishments. And I think it's time that perhaps we have a conversation on if I'm still in market. So for some people, they like to kind of tee it up. And I would really encourage you to know your leader. I can't give you the right answer for that. It's know your leader, know what they're going to respond to. Is it an email first so they can prepare? Or do they just really like to talk things out in person? Mm -hmm. And then I would say, you know what, make, the, make a confident ask and allow for silence. Because I think sometimes the hard part of this is it feels really uncomfortable to go to your manager and ask for money. But I want you to come with your data come with your results, make the ask, and then just be silent. Mm -hmm. Because I know sometimes in that point of discomfort, we can backtrack and be like, oh, okay, but you know what? If you if you can't do it, never mind. No big deal. So be, I want to pause and see if you have any questions. And then I'll talk about what it's like to you know be recruited for a job and do it on the front end. 
Yeah, no, I love what you're sharing. I think one of the biggest challenges that companies are having and workers are having is just inflation that is so wild. Like I think in New York, I spend $9 for like an almond latte, which feels wild. Um, I remember a time when there were $3, like we're, that time just feels very far away. So, okay, given the inflation rates, maybe the market hasn't caught up to someone's um, reality. And I also know that one of the worst things you can do when negotiating is bring up your personal situation because it has nothing to do with the responsibilities that you're carrying out. Um, so what would you say as far as like somebody doing the research to come up with a number? Because I feel like right now, companies are losing a lot of talent because the numbers are just outdated right now. So let's say they want to come in a little more aggressive. Um, what would be your feedback on that if somebody does so and the feedback they get, you know, from their employer is like, whoa, like sticker shock, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can't handle sticker shock. So what yeah. I tell folks is, you know, that's why I really advocate for that good, better, best. Because you're going to go out there and you're right. You're going to get the most latest. Mar and the, the data that's reported is only as accurate as the people who are reporting the data and as companies are doing compensation surveys. So you're going to be close. But I think you can absolutely, in your mind, say what's a good number, a better number, and maybe even an aggressive number. But trust your gut. And if you want to go with the aggressive number, let's use some results to back up why you deserve that. And you're right. Um, I As much as it like tugs at my heartstrings, Using your personal situation just doesn't help your cause because yeah. organizations at the end of the day, which sounds really like mean to say, really care about results. And like, let's be honest, from the organizational perspective, they also have budgets they're working with. And lots of times, even when I was a leader and I'd have people come to me and have this conversation with me because they wanted a market adjustment. Sometimes even me as a leader, I wanted so badly to give them everything they're asking for, but I'm like, this is my budget and here's what I can do. But you know what, maybe next time we come in the next review cycle, I can set a little bit more aside for you. And so, yes, I want us to ask. Yes, I want us to be aggressive. But I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. Let's also have realistic expectations about what your organization can and cannot do. Sometimes we have budgets. Sometimes we can do a little bit now. Sometimes we can't do something now, but we can do something in six months. And so I'm, I've had clients who've gone in and had this conversation and the answer was no, not yet, but they had trust in their leader and in their company. And I heard back from one actually just a month ago and it took them about four months, but they were actually gave, actually gave her a little more than what she asked for. So again, let's just have some realistic expectations. It would be amazing to go in and be like, I want a $20,000 raise and you walk out with a $20,000 raise. So like, let's just kind of really kind of level set, you know, this may take some time. And so you just have to ask yourself, how long am I willing to allow it to take? Okay. So I love what you're sharing. I feel like there's a whole phenomenon right now around career cushioning, like just, you know, or poly work, just taking on something else in order to supplement your income, set yourself up. There's also, also quiet quitting. I actually like really hate myself when I use these terms. Like, I just feel like I'm like being a media soundbite troll or something, but I'm hearing about them a lot. I'm seeing them. What is your take on someone um, who likes their job, you know, but the compensation's not quite there? Um, they need to do a little quiet quitting, like AKA saying no to more than their responsibilities so that they can free up their space to do some career cushioning, which if those of you who haven't heard of that, it's this idea of taking on something else on the side to supplement your income or maybe something that you can grow over time. So Curious, like, what is your opinion on setting those boundaries if they can't meet your financial needs? And how do you kind of say to them, hey, can we talk about this in six months or whatever without feeling pushy? Mm -hmm. So I probably did this before it was fashionable. I remember um, being in a, in a job and asking for a little more. And I mean, they gave me a little more, but it was, it was not enough. I wasn't making that much money. My daughter was in daycare. And if anybody's ever paid daycare or even any sort of caregiver bills of any, a person of any age, you know, that like, that's not cheap. And, um, so I was working full time and I got an invitation to be a part-time, uh, professor at the local university. It's going to be one night a week. And I thought to myself, I'm like, Oh, this feels like relief because you know what? One night a week, I can do something I really love, which is teaching. And it's going to give me exactly what I need to pay for daycare and just not feel so like, <gasps> you know, in my budget, which I think is what a lot of us feel. Um, 
Did I have to quiet quit at my day job? I don't know. I'm going back and I'm like retrofitting these terms. What it did force me to do is to get very strategic about what I said yes to. Because I think sometimes, you know, in our day careers, especially, it's just normal, especially when we're young, like we say yes to everything. Because, oh, I want to try that. Oh, I want to try that. Oh, I want to try that. And I did a lot of that. But I remember when I took on this assignment of teaching um, at the local university one night a week, I definitely had to be much more strategic about what I said yes to. And is what I'm saying yes to in alignment with my values and my goals and in my performance that is needed to, you know, be in my role today? Or is, you know, am I just saying yes to things because it sounds like fun? Another piece that's really important that I especially want our female listeners um, or anyone who identifies as female to really think about is I want you to think about your unpaid work. Because in the office, women get 44% more requests to do unpaid work. And this is research that was published by Harvard. And these are things like, hey, can you plan the holiday party? Will you take notes in the meeting? Um, hey, we're out of um, things in the break room. Can you stock that? Like it's these little tasks, these little like low level committees and things that we're being asked to do that they simply don't ask men to do. Or if they do ask men to do them, men say no. And women are like, oh, that sounds great. And so I really had to think about, okay, what are some of these things that I need to dump, delegate or outsource so that I have enough mental space and energy to do this evening thing? And, you know, in regards to the evening thing, I would say I said yes to it because it made me excited. Like I was energized by it. It sounded like fun and it was fun. And I'll be honest, saying yes to that opportunity and teaching one night a week, honestly, it did supplement my income, but it kind of reinvigorated me a little bit, you know? So I think it made me feel better at work too, because it was something I would look forward to and I was excited about. So I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but that's just in my own experience, something that I had to do to make both things work for a time. Now I don't do that anymore. You know, I did it for a time until I just didn't need to do it anymore. I love that. And I also want to just offer people listening. I think there's such power in a part-time job and even poly work. Like I know millennials did poly work, meaning taking on multiple part-time gigs to keep the lights on during the recession for their bank accounts, you know, but I feel like now people are doing poly work or at least creatives like me, I see it as a means to express yourself in so many different channels. So, and, and then you can kind of increase the volume or lower it. Um, if you end up in a job where you'd rather, pay your bills in a different way. That is totally possible. I also want to just say, as we close out this salary topic and I move on, is what is your number one salary negotiation secret? If somebody doesn't listen to this conversation at all, and they only think to listen to this one thing you're about to share with salary, what would it be? Mm -hmm. So juicy. Okay. So here's what I want you to know. As a former HR person and a former recruiter, talking about money for us is like talking about the weather. And we expect you to negotiate when you're looking for a job. And the reason why I tell everyone that, anybody who will listen, is I think sometimes we get so scared to negotiate thinking, what if they think I'm pushy or what if they take the offer away? But like when we're on the HR side, just know we expect you to negotiate. Like this is just part of our job. This is like breathing for us. So like talking about the weather is just normal and we're waiting for you to bring it up. So I just want you to remind that in your your head when you're all scared to ask for money, just be like, they're waiting for me to ask. They're waiting for me to ask. They're waiting for me to ask. And if I can slip in a little tip, men typically ask for higher starting salaries than women. The research shows it. And in my personal experience, I've observed it for decades. And so ask for what you're worth and what you might think is aggressive is likely what a man is asking for as baseline. Oh, so good. So real. I actually, um, as a speaker, I feel like you do speaking too, so you know. It's so interesting. Like, I really do feel like as a woman, if, especially if a nonprofit reaches out, but it's a large nonprofit that does have a budget, I feel like this like villain if I'm like, what's the compensation? So I have learned to say it like I'm ordering a sandwich at Subway. It's like, hey, what's the compensation? What's your budget range for this? Mm-hmm. Um, just I like do the exact budget. same. When people ask, hey, are you available on this date? Absolutely. My speaking rate is X. Here are the topics I speak about. Let me know if you'd like to hop on a call. Like it's you, like it's just like an autoresponder. This is what they get every single time. So there's never an assumption that I'm going to speak for free. Yeah. Men don't want to speak for free. Yeah. And like I've got like a dog and a mom and a friend that I'd rather sit and like itch my arm and eat a French fry with over dinner. I love speaking. But to put yourself through that kind of work 
complimentary. It's work yeah. and it's good work. It, it, it is, is work, but airports are not what they used to be. <laughs> I yes, I get you. I, I love you. what I do, but it's what I do for a reason. It's work. It's a place of contribution. And I hope everyone listening remembers that. Okay. So I know in my book, I talk about the 10 different core skill sets that I'm seeing in the workplace um, and readers who have listened to that and listened to the podcast. They know that, but I know you have your own take on how to figure out what is your unique talent? What is your zone of genius? And I know that for you, especially in your book um, about closing the confidence gap, it's key to know what your zone of genius is in order to confidently carry out your work. So can you tell me a little bit about, I don't know, like what you're seeing when it comes to how someone can figure out what their zone of genius really is? Yeah. So I'll tell you what I'm, this is super recent because I've actually been out teaching this. And so I want to tell you like direct observations. One of the things that I've observed is we've never actually slowed down and gotten conscious and intentional about what gives us energy. And so, you know, you can ask all these, what are my unique talents questions, things like, and I have them in the book, like, what do you love to do? Where do you lose track of time? Like, what makes you geek out? Like, when are you like, yeah, I feel so geeky, you know? And, you know, um, what, you know, surges your energy? Where, where could you spend all of your time? Where could you get lost in a conversation? Those questions are important, but sometimes I think we're blinded by um, when things come really easy for us, we don't see it as unique talent. So I learned to ask a better question. And this is what, um, my audiences have really been responding to is I want you to think of three buckets. I want you to review your last week, your last two weeks, just give yourself a time frame and ask yourself, what were my energy suckers? Like what things did I do that just sucked my energy? Was it typing that report? Was it sending emails? Was it, you know, some, for some people it's speaking. Oh, it's when I have to speak, you know? And then I want you to write down, what are my energy stallers? Like, what are the things that I do, but I'm kind of going through the motions. They don't really give me energy. They don't really take it away. It's kind of like, I just feel like I'm showing up and sleepwalking a little bit. And they write those down. And then I have them put in a bucket. What are my energy surgers? Like these things, like full on geek out mode. It comes easy for me. I'm excited about it. Like if somebody quartered me, I could talk about it for two hours. Like that sort of thing. The things that I always tell people, it literally makes you feel like you. You're like, yes, this is what I've been put on this earth to do. So I actually, after I have them list out in these three buckets, then I have, then I have them um, do a little analysis. I say, okay, as a percentage, you must add up to 100%. Where have you been spending your time during this time period that you're evaluating? And in most cases that I've seen in reality, and I've probably talked to at least, and I've had probably uh, 100 to 200 women do this exercise in the last 30 days, 30 to 45 days, I'd say 50% are in energy suckers. Mm. And probably another 30% are in stallers. And they're doing very little work using the talents that like somebody is counting on them to do. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes like when they actually look at that and they see it on paper, it's like, whoa. And it's a huge aha for them to say, okay, well, what do I need to dump? Like, what am I doing? Because COVID demanded it or somebody at some time demanded it. It just doesn't make any sense. And what can I delegate? I, I say, you know what, look at your list and ask yourself, what is no longer a development opportunity for me? Like what's easy for me? It's probably stalling my energy. Like what can I delegate? And what can I outsource? Like, are there companies and task rabbits and VAs and people I can hire to do these sort of things. And yes, I'm talking about corporate. I'm working in corporate, you know? And so, you know, doing that exercise and then, you know, continuing to do that exercise every quarter because things creep in is a practice that I really encourage my women leaders to follow because we cannot advance to our highest level of contribution and leadership in our organizations if we're burnout and overwhelmed. And remember, burnout doesn't always come from overworking. Lots of times in my own experience and when I work with women, burnout comes from doing so little of what lights us up. Yeah. And I think that that's really an aha for folks, especially the stallers, because you know what? Sometimes we just do them because we're better at them than most people. But that's where we can really get in the golden handcuffs. We're doing work that's like, eh, but the pay is good. The benefits are good, but it just doesn't light us up. And so just doing that little exercise can really just bring a visual of where am I spending my time and where should I be spending my time? This has been so great. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you that is just so important that everybody listening knows just based on your body of work, your insight, your book? Um, what is like that one thing that you wish everybody would take with them? 
Oh my goodness. Okay. So I would say one of the things, you know, when I think about the book is really a call to action for organizations to recognize what systemic things are at play that hold women back from being more confident. And a lot of it is, is there's not enough women in the rooms where decisions are made. So like one of the things that I leave with women is, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was almost right when she said everybody belongs in the rooms where decisions are made. And yes, we belong, but it's not enough just to be in the room. Like we need to make impact in those rooms. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to use your voice, use your skills, use your talents to speak up because you are more than qualified to belong. And I, I always joke, I'm like, listen, gals, it took Kevin McCarthy 15 votes to get into Senate or yeah, was Senate house, which one was he in? Like you're qualified, you're qualified. So like somebody's counting on your unique talents. And so, you know, speak up because confidence is a side effect of taking action and you can go on and do great things and make impact while also feeling nervous, while also feeling a lot of doubt because it's the confidence that comes after you take those actions. So that's mm. what I would leave them with. Mm. Thank you again for coming on. Where can everybody find you? A good place to find me is you can go to my website at kellyraythompson.com. If you go to downloads, I've got a salary negotiation guide that it'll walk you through exactly how to do what we just did today on the podcast. And so you can check that out. Or I'm on Instagram at Kelly Ray Thompson, and I'm also on LinkedIn there as well. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. It was so fun to talk to you. Me too. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.